Hello. Greetings. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for spending some time with us as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in the pages of Scripture. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples as part of a non-denominational church in Los Angeles, California. And if there's any questions or comments that you have about our conversation today, we'd love for you to join us and to let us know what you think. If we can also be of any further service, please let us know at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Today, let us consider what Paul expressed to the Romans in Romans 8, beginning in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God, and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved." Now hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. We're going to look beginning at Romans 8 and 20 and 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Because within Romans 8, 17-25 here, we can perceive how Paul understands the condition of the creation in which we live. He has previously spoken of the transgression of Adam and the effects on humanity and the creation in Romans 5, 12-21. And so when he speaks about the condition of it here, he says it's subjected to futility by God. Not that it was its own choice, that it's under bondage to decay and it's groaning and suffering until now. And this is one of the very few things that almost all religious and philosophical traditions can agree upon, that the present creation is pretty messed up. It's in a pretty bad state. That corruption and decay are the natural order of things. We were all kind of taught the great chain of being. And that great chain of being, if you think about it, is dependent on death. Because for anything to live, it must consume some other form of matter to continue to survive. That natural features that exist in their present form do so because of some form of violence. Uh, We can see uh, volcanic eruptions creating uh, new uh, forms of earth, while other forms of earth are being uh, returned to the crust, uh, deeper within the crust. Uh, We see earthquakes and floods and storms and their devastating effects, and and how all these things yet also provide the catalyst uh, for new life. Thus, humanity has not found it difficult to fully engage in consumption and violence uh, toward natural features, toward plants, animals, and even one another as part of the way this creation is working. Now, in many Eastern traditions, this is just a natural order of things. It's something maybe that we lament, but we don't really question. In these ways of thinking, just kind of shrugging at the existence of evil, and that we try to find ways to transcend it all. For Plato, the Greek philosopher, and his pervasive influence on Hellenistic and Western philosophies and perspectives, the natural order of things is just a corrupted version of the ideal forms, and therefore are shackles from which we yearn to be unchained. 
But Paul recognizes that, yes, the creation in its present form is in bad shape. It's in ever uh, unrelenting cycles of death and rebirth. The things aren't ideal. That the ways of the world involve a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of decay and degradation. But for Paul, as we can see in Romans 20 and 21, chapter 8 here, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. That's not the last word for Paul. That in Christ, Christians can maintain a brash, even a foolish hope that God has not given up on his creation, and there's hope for it. That what Paul understood, and something he never denied, and this is a very important difference between the way that the Jewish people of Second Temple Judaism saw things and the Greeks saw things, was that God made all things in the creation and considered it very good in Genesis chapter 1. And in fact, in Romans 1, 18 through 20, Paul continued to expect that everyone should be able to see God's majestic power and personality in the creation especially in how they themselves are made in his image. And that is why, as Christians, we should not acquiesce to the fatalism of the Eastern traditions or the idealism of the Greek traditions, that we can perceive God's work in the creation should and can be overawed at its majesty and its beauty. And if the Eastern tradition or the Hellenistic philosophies were right, that God would have already given the whole creation over to that futility, and that way we're just without hope in the world. But when God subjected the creation to futility, something that he actively did, it wasn't just you know the, the way of things, he actively did it, he, it was not going to be the last word, that God maintained hope that there was going to be a release from that bondage. And, according to what Paul has already made known in chapter 8 of Romans, we already have a realization of a glimpse of that hope come to fruition. The freedom of God's children in Christ. Uh, the kind of the hope there that the creation has is something we can see in a glimpse in ourselves. The redemption of our souls, that spiritual association in life that we presently enjoy in God in Christ through the Spirit. And so because of this, Paul is able to continue to say, Now... Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. In verses 23 through 25. So in their spiritual regeneration in life, Christians enjoy a manifestation of that hope they are going to uh, enjoy, and that the creation shares in God and Christ through the Spirit. But it's only a glimpse, because the hope of redemption is ultimately also from the bondage of corruption and decay. And that spiritual regeneration is very important, very good, very necessary, but it is not the end of the story, as so many imagine it to be. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, thanks to God in Christ, but we await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And what else could the redemption of the body be but its resurrection, as established in 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 3, 20-21? Because what is resurrection? Anastasis in Greek is a standing again, the bringing back to life of what was dead. In Christ, such a bringing to life of what was dead also will mean it will never uh die again, as Paul has made it clear in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 of Romans. So Paul declares that Christians groan inwardly, yearning for the redemption of that body, the final adoption. And we, we talk about verses 24 and 25 because Paul says these are the, the hope that is seen is not hope. 
Because who hopes for what he sees? If the hope he's talking about is some kind of spiritual life, some kind of spiritual regeneration, well, Paul says we already have that. There's nothing to hope about our spiritual regeneration because it's already been accomplished and secured in Jesus. So the fact that he says that we already have held on to and hold firmly to that spiritual life we have in Jesus, but yet there's this hope that remains unfulfilled. There's something that is still remaining, and it's something for which we wait with patience. And it's that that desire for all to be set right, to have that resurrection of life. And this is how Paul powerfully affirms the hope of redemption of the body in the resurrection. And now we can go back to the beginning, that the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God, and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. Yes, we have kind of started in the middle toward the end and then gone back to the beginning, which is generally not a great way of doing a textual analysis, but it's because Paul has kind of rhetorically front-loaded what he's communicating and then explains what he's communicating. Because everything in Romans so far has led to Romans 8, that everyone has sinned, that we are justified by faith, the nature of the law, and sin. But in Romans 8, 1-17, through 17, Paul has said that in Christ, God has done what the law couldn't do. He's fulfilled the law. He provides the means by which we can live according to the Spirit. That if we live in the Spirit, we're precluding life in the flesh. That if we're led by God's Spirit, we are children of God. And that our adoption is testified to by the Spirit. That if Christians are God's children, they're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If they suffer with him. And then they will be glorified with him. In Romans 8, 31-39, Paul will go on and provide more reason to believe that he sees that these Roman Christians to whom he is writing are experiencing some kind of persecution, resistance, or trial. And he's making theological sense of it for them. And that's what we see here. We are joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him, if we're going to be exalted with him and glorified with him. Now, this suffering exaltation pipeline, so to speak, we can also see in Philippians 2, that Jesus deeply humbled himself, suffered to the point of death, uh, and then was raised in, in glory. Uh, and in fact, there's a resonance here of Jesus' own words he repeated frequently, like in Matthew 23, 12, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So there's this expectation that if you want to get the glory, you've got to go through the trial. And the way that he's trying to frame what Christians are going through is that the present suffering cannot be compared with the glory that awaits. And this is something he also makes clear in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, where, in fact, he talks about what we experience, what he's experienced, is light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory to be revealed to us. And in Revelation 21 and 22, uh, Jesus helps John to envision this as a heavenly Jerusalem with precious stones, uh, which is kind of the best way that we can, in our limited form of conception, kind of come to grips with this. And now Paul then speaks of how the creation waits the revelation of the sons of God which could be angelic. Sons of God is used that way frequently in uh, Old Testament and, and Second Temple period apocryphal text. But 
better understood based on everything else we've seen in Romans 8 as redeemed humanity. And we point all this out to show this is not unrelated themes, that we could put together the story here that Paul's trying to say about the hope and the creation, that God has subjected the creation to suffering and futility and bondage to decay, that the creation groans under that, yearns for the revealing of the sons of God, that yes, Christians suffer, partly in futility and bondage to decay, but also because there are these forces of evil working against them. They enjoy spiritual freedom, however, and yearn for the body to experience that same freedom in the resurrection, that in the resurrection the creation will also find redemption from its corruption and decay and will enjoy the glorified, redeemed people of God upon it. And this is this glorious hope that should give Christians confidence to endure. Why do we talk about this? What is so important about this story? Well, first we can see that everything has been affected by the corruption and decay that is inherent in the creation. Many times we critique the Calvinistic concept of total depravity. And when we critique total depravity, we must be very careful lest we go to its equally uh, wrong opposite, which is uh, not that much depravity. Uh, The problem with total depravity is not the depravity part, it's the total part. Uh, There's still a lot of depravity. There's a lot of depravity, in fact, in the creation. And we can see this depravity in terms of emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual conditions. Uh, The things that we endure that are trials and difficult uh, are because the creation has been subjected to this uh, futility and decay. And this can help provide... Uh, some level of explanation to matters about theodicy. The idea of how how is it possible that God is good and made a good creation, but there's so much suffering? It would seem that all the suffering that we see, all of the ways in which things are seemingly out of sorts, and and the just the viciousness and the ugliness, the pain, the horrors that are done on the creation, that are done by animals in an instinctual way, the the violence that the, is inherent in the way the creation works uh, in all of the forces that are aligned with it, let alone uh, the depravity and the depth of darkness in the human heart. Uh, How is this all possible that there is all of this, but there is still a good God? Well, uh, in this sense, it's because as God has given uh, people over to decisions, uh, this is the consequence of these decisions, but it's not going to be the final word. It can also provide an explanation why we see the brokenness and the difficulty and the despair. We don't want to necessarily pathologize all forms of difficulty, all the things that that are less than the perceived normal, but there is a sense in which it can provide us a theological comfort to understand people aren't, God doesn't make people a certain way uh, as if that it, it's all positive, that in fact that all of us have a gift, a package. Uh, then we can't really understand exactly what has come from where and how. And it's not that we can't f- use some of our limitations to God's glory. Uh, that's not it at all the situation, but a realization that not everything is exactly the way God had uh, created it from the beginning, that it is marked by this corruption and this decay that is present in the the, the creation. And it also is a, a validation and a vindication in a very real way of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes with the idea everything is absurd, everything is futile, and that everything under the sun is a striving after wind, well, it's because of the the fact the creation has been subjected to corruption and decay. When we understand Ecclesiastes in light of that, that the preacher is talking about the way things work in the creation 
as subjected to futility and decay. Uh, there's a lot of great and profound wisdom we can gain from him in how to live and relate to this creation. And it's the ground on base and graces on which we understand anything that we do in this creation is ephemeral and it's temporary. And we need to be careful about trying to invest too much meaning in that which is going to perish, that which is going to fade away, that no matter what kind of monument you try to build, uh, it's going to perish, it's going to be dissolved, that none of it is going to endure because of the way the creation has been subjected to corruption and decay. And that's a very difficult pill for us as humans to swallow. But it's not the end of the story. And that's the problem in our society is that when you turn away from God and the hope of Jesus is that it, it is the end of the story and it leads to a kind of despair and nihilism that has led uh, many people to uh, despair even of life. Because in Christ we can have the confidence that God's creation is still good even if it's corrupted. Consider all the times in the Psalms where there is this expectation that the creation praises God. That we look and we can see majesty and beauty in the creation. That, yeah, we could focus on all the viciousness and the ugliness of it. We could focus on the destruction caused by all kinds of forms of natural disaster. But yet, all of these forces have also created this majestic place that many times overawes us with its beauty. Uh, we consider some of the most uh, profound locations, uh, places like Yosemite, places like Grand Canyon, um, Niagara Falls, uh, all places like this, in fact, are being actively destroyed, right? All of those places exist because you've had all of these floods and all of this uh, weathering of rock, and some rock got weathered, some didn't, and some in various reasons, and, and so on and so forth. And yet it has also created this profound beauty that testifies that there's something greater at work here. And also it testifies to our own need for relational unity. And that we can see that deeply within us, in, in our way that we relate, in the way that we conduct ourselves, and what makes for a healthy life in this world, is still a testimony to how we need people. We need one another. Uh, we are not made to be on our own. We are made to be in a relationship with God and with uh, fellow people. And that we are made as body, soul, and spirit. And we have so much in our society right now uh, of all kind of form of hatred of, and dissociation of all of those. That we look at ourselves as different than our bodies. We don't listen to our bodies. We're not really in tune with our body because we see ourselves as something different from it. Because we hold it in a kind of derision and contempt because of its limitations and its failings. And yet our minds are just as limited and just as corrupt. In fact, uh, maybe even more so because it has the pretense uh, that the body can never try to imagine. And yet we are, we are not human if we do not have a body or a soul and a spirit. We're not truly human without all of it. And God made us this way. And the problem was not with how God made us. And we want to point fingers and see all the difficulties and try to argue back. But when we're arguing back, the problem should not be the way God made us. The problem is with the corruption and decay that has now afflicted what God has made. And that is why the great hope of Christians, what's going to sustain us, what can help us deal with and grapple with all of the struggles and trials, just in terms of life in general and the difficulties of life, let alone the ones that get added and compounded because we confess Jesus, is the redemption of the body, the ultimate adoption as sons. And that it's not just for us as believers, but it's also for the creation. Because Jesus of Nazareth 
is fully human. In Colossians 2, 8 through 10, that in him the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. And as fully human, his flesh was made of the dust of the earth. It was a part of this creation. And in the resurrection, Jesus' body was brought back to life. That's the one consistent witness in all the Gospels, is that the tomb was empty. It's not just that they saw Jesus in this new form. It's that the body that he had inhabited was gone, because the body had been raised from the dead. And that transformation for immortality that Jesus' resurrection body went through, when talked about uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, again, we're talking about things beyond our comprehension, yet the illustration being used is not one of elimination, but as enhancement, a putting on, not a tearing away. And so Jesus remains fully human, by the way. That's what 1 Timothy 2.5 makes very clear. But he's also fully God in his resurrection body. And what that means is that there's some very small bit of this creation, which is presently and already redeemed, already transformed for immortality, already will never die again. I'm going to repeat that so we can really meditate on that, let that sink in. That there is already a part of this fallen creation that has received its redemption. That little bit of the creation which constituted Jesus' body that was raised from the dead has already been transformed for immortality and will endure forever. It's already happened. A little bit. And so that is how, in the present decay, and despite that decay, the creation can have hope in its redemption because that resurrection day awaits. And it's not just because of the fact that we will live again that we have hope, but that we are going to live in this resurrection in unimaginable glory. It's going to be manifest in the resurrection body, and is testified in terms of these precious jewels. And this is what provides that endurance through trial, so that we can more properly frame it. Uh, I do not believe that Paul is trying to dismiss at all the very real difficulties that Christians go through in life. And he was not trying to shame them in either 2 Corinthians 4 or in Romans 8 about the nature of these trials. He's not trying to minimize what he has suffered. He's trying to maximize the glory that is to await us. That when you consider what God is going to do when Jesus returns and the resurrection happens, what we have gone through will seem a slight momentary affliction, which is just a profoundly powerful thing. Consider how we look at our current trials and difficulties, how many times we think that they are insuperable, how many times we just live in constant dis, dis, almost depression, uh, despair about the weaknesses and failures, limitations and frustrations, and yet to believe that that is all going to be considered as, 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 as this light momentary affliction is to really testify to how great it is what God is going to do. And it's also hope for the creation itself. Because a lot, there are a lot of arguments out there about what's going to happen to creation. A lot of people take their cue from an annihilationist reading of Second Peter chapter 3, in which the belief is everything's just going to burn up, uh, and, and then God's going to do something different. But if resurrection means anything, Anastasis to rise again, it means if nothing else, the transformed dust of our resurrection bodies will continue to preserve something of the present creation. That even if you're going to be in a maximalist annihilationist, that the resurrection body of believers will still maintain some redemption of this creation. But do we need to have such a maximalist annihilationist view? Is that even something that is even 
consistent with the witness of what we see in the scriptures. Because really, if we think about it, if the problem with the creation is sin and death, and sin and death are eliminated through Jesus' death and his resurrection, why would we imagine the good creation cannot find redemption in what God is going to do on that final day? Does that mean there'll be a purging by fire? Absolutely. That's kind of what 2 Peter 3 is, is kind of talking about. But that doesn't demand complete annihilation. Because God has not given up on his creation. And this is when we need to remember our problem is not being human. This is one of those difficult things that we have, right? That a lot of times when we want to uh, talk about our limitations, I'm, I'm only human. As if that is an excuse for something that we have done. That, that it's a problem of being human. Or that we are created. Or that we have flesh. Uh, God made us this way and called it good. Very good, in fact. Our problem is not that we are human or that we are the creation. Uh, if we think that our problem is in our finite nature, that speaks to the uh, presumption and arrogance that we now have maintained in our corrupted minds to think that we could in any way, shape, or form go escape beyond the bounds by, in which God has made us. Uh, instead, we are to humbly recognize we are the creation and, and be thankful for our Creator. And to realize that our Creator has made us good, and that we have been corrupted by the sin and death that pervades this creation, that leads to its decay, and that we have hope. That we have hope that we'll be raised from the dead, that we will be not less human in the resurrection, but instead fully human. And that all of the good that God intended in us will be able to be manifest, and it'll be in this glorified form beyond our understanding. That doesn't mean we have to become superheroes. doesn't mean we have to become mutants. doesn't mean that we have to escape the finite boundaries of our nature. Instead, we will see how what God has made is good and the creation he has made is good. And we will be able to uh, enjoy that in a way beyond our current understanding. And this is how we can have hope in the creation. That the creation is absolutely subject to corruption and decay. Never-ending cycles of life and death and creation and destruction. And, and the preacher is right. It is all futile. It is absurd. It was not always thus, however. And it will not always be thus. Because as Romans 8, 16-25 testifies, uh, there are grounds for hope for believers and the creation. That there is redemption for believers spiritually that we now enjoy. And we should cherish that and take great confidence in that. But that now we patiently wait that our bodies will share in that redemption and that the creation will share in that redemption. So how can we draw encouragement and strength from our hope in God, in Christ, as joint heirs in God? How can we endure suffering and distress in this life? Can the creation look forward to anything good? What might the hope of the creation mean for us as believers? And how can this portrayal of the glory waiting for us encourage us as we press onward? Love for you to consider these things. If you have any uh, comments, anything you'd like to add to our conversation, please let us know in, in, in the comments section where you found us. We'd love for you to subscribe to us as well if we've been of encouragement to you. And if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VenaChurchOfChrist.org uh, or find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. You can get in contact with me personally at Evangelist at VenaChurchOfChrist.org. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us. We pray, uh, thankful that you have given us this life, this creation, for uh, 
your love and care and provision for us in Jesus. We uh, do bitterly lament how the creation uh, is now subject to decay and futility. And we very re- very really experience all of the trials and difficulties that attend to that. And yet, Father, let us take courage and confidence in the hope that one day your Son will return and we will experience the glory and the resurrection that you have promised for us and that, that there yet is hope for us and for this creation. And we pray that we would be able to wait for that with patience, uh, enduring all that we must be endure until we can obtain to that day. Uh, we pray for those who are in pain and distress and grief and ill, that you would comfort, provide for them, and heal them. We do pray that there may be peace on the earth, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we especially await that great day of resurrection. And we pray, despite the need to wait for it patiently, that it may come quickly. Amen. Come, Lord, quickly. Come, come, please. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so glad again that you've joined us. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.